Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in which I get the opportunity to speak in greater detail to my guests than time allows for on the last word in Today FM. Today we're talking to a man who has made his fortune as a bookmaker, but who now greatly regrets what he sees as the pernicious influence of gambling in Irish society and indeed internationally, and who is campaigning to try and have some of the worst excesses curbed. He's also very interesting on the subject of his own midlife diagnosis with ADHD and how he tries to help others with that condition now and also his involvement in Buddhism and much more besides. Enjoy today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper with Stuart Kenny. Stuart Kenny, thank you very much for joining us here for Magnified with Matt Cooper. I'm going to talk to you a lot about gambling and I'm going to talk to you about your role in building up Paddy Power and also now your role in Stop Gambling Harm. But I want to talk to you about other things first because I'm fascinated that you were just before we sat down, you were telling me about your role in helping people with ADHD and also how you just dropped in that the growth of Paddy Power might have had a lot to do with your own ADHD. Tell us about that. Yes, I... Uh was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 41 or 42 uh, and it kind of made sense of my life of my life it was very instrumental in the success and some of the failures of Paddy Power there's a load of pluses and load of minuses of ADHD probably for me possibly more pluses than minuses but for most people that's probably more minuses than pluses I have very very mild ADHD and I coach uh, people with ADHD. Now, after I retired from Paddy Power, I became uh, a psychotherapist, but now I specialize in coaching people with ADHD. Uh, Sorry, I'll come back to how you coach people with ADHD in a moment, but what prompted you to go and get a diagnosis and then how did you react to getting that diagnosis? Uh, I was attending uh, Professor Michael Fitzgerald for general counselling because I've always been on the edge in a lot of ways and um, you know in those days you weren't too sure whether you were telling people you were going for counselling because now of course everybody says they're going for counselling it's become terribly fashionable um, in fact it's nearly the opposite so uh, and after about a year and a half and Michael has written on ADHD, wrote a magnificent book on ADHD, talking about all the people who had it, Shea Guevara, bundles of other people. Um, and he said, have you ever considered ADHD? And then I said, I don't know, even know what it is. And he spelled out, and it just made perfect sense. And um, what is it for you? I mean, what, what, what did he spell out to you and how did it make sense to you? I often joke there's only two time scales in ADHD, now or not now. Everything must be done now. So I'm late for everything because I must go and... Uh, because everything I see I must do now, which gave a great urgency in Paddy Power. Um, but it meant that... Uh, 
when people were while um, people were talking to suppliers, they'd have to say, "Don't tell Stuart because he'll want it tomorrow." I mean, it doesn't fit in with the process. Um, there was a, a, an unbelievable urgency. Uh, but there is distraction, but there's novelty seeking as well. So it is very hard to live with. Uh, you are all the time novelty seeking. Is it hard for you to live with or for other people to live with you? Oh, to other people to live with me. It's very easy for me. <laughs> um, but novelty seeking, distraction, um, numerous other things. Uh, so... So, psychotherapy doesn't work as well as coaching for ADHD. Coaching uh, works very well with ADHD, uh, to because psychotherapy is sitting with the person in relationship and allowing the person to uh, talk and with no agenda. Whereas coaching has an agenda, and the one thing people with ADHD need is an agenda. Uh, Why is that? Because they need routine, because their day gets so distracted. Um, so you will be... To give you, it might be better to give examples. The sort of thing, if you mention something to me and I, I went on the internet uh, to research it, after 10 minutes, I could be on something totally different because you go from one thing to the other to the other. And so clients regularly tell me that three hours after looking up a simple thing like booking a flight, they've ended up on a site totally unconnected that they spent two hours and their day is gone. And it's that distraction, distraction during uh, conversations that, and you lose the track of what the person is, is saying. Now, you build up things by because you, you realise they've said something and it's significant, but, you, but you've got distracted. You say, that was an interesting point. Can you just repeat it again? You, know, you, you build up. But it is getting, for a lot of people, it is getting them to, have a, to do a routine from the, you know, the night before for how their day is and to have the three main things they want to achieve in the day. And there's, there is processes like that that coaching works really well. Ned Hallowell, who who was the kind of father of um, ADHD, wrote numerous books on it. Uh, Dr. Ned Hallowell uh, talked about this, about uh, a kid who had ADHD going into school and the janitor each day, you say, we'll call him Matt for a second. Uh, Matt, what are the three things you want to achieve today? And so he would say, right, maybe that's not as important as that. And get it, put it uh, in order. And that really worked for this kid. So very often Hallowell, when he was coaching people with ADHD, would actually ring them up each night to see how the day had gone and to get them an agenda for the next day so it doesn't become totally disorganised because the sense of failure with a wasted day. Just spell out again what ADHD stands for, attention Att deficit. Hyperactivity disorder. Now, there is ADD, which is attention deficit disorder. It's the hyperactivity that makes the H part, and that's what I have. Very that, much so. I have to say, knowing you for more than 30 <laughs> years, you definitely would have that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it, it in some ways was the making 
of Paddy Power because there was always novelty seeking, there was always risk taking, which is one of the major things. So a lot of people with ADHD end up in um, in prison. Uh, in America, they they reckon, you know, a, a percentage that end up in prison is way above the percentage of people with ADHD in uh, society, which is around three or four, four percent, I think they think that people have ADHD. But we we seek novelty, we seek danger, not everybody with ADHD. I mean, there has been so many success stories with ADHD, and I have been lucky in a lot of ways to have ADHD, but the vast majority of people aren't lucky with it. But it also strikes me that if you'd got that diagnosis at the age of 41, 42, you're 70 now, you must have been chief executive of Paddy Power Bookmakers at the time when you got that diagnosis. When you were going for counselling, there would be very few chief executives, I would imagine, particularly back in that era, who would have actually gone for counselling. Probably so, but it was an area I was always interested in um, from a very early age, you know, the process of how one develops as a human. Um, and uh, my father had depression. Uh, I was always frightened of having depression. Um, I mean, he was incredibly successful. Um, and I think our family are hugely proud of the Kenny Report and Building Land, which 50 years later is still relevant. And of course, the politicians, even 50 years later, still are shying away for something so radical uh, as the Kenny Report. Just for those who aren't familiar with it, just explain, it is regularly cited as the way to deal with our land and housing crisis. What, can, what do you remember of it and what, why would you regard it as so important? This was before the Mahan and Flood Tribunals, of course. Um, and he was not asked to look into the corruption in building land, even though it, my understanding is he got a lot of letters that suggested uh, around certain areas in Dublin, Tallinn, place like that, that uh, same people were turning up uh, at every area that had been uh, recently zoned that they had bought beforehand. But what they... he, he said basically in layman's terms is the land is the people's land so for the use of the people that the the governments were putting in services roads schools and so many other uh, services there and private developers were actually taking all the profit rather than the people taking the profit, even though we, our taxes were putting in all these services. So he said that land should be allowed to be taken over at agricultural value plus a third, I think with a third or a quarter, I think with a third, uh, by the state for the good of the state. And when it came out, I think it was 1972, I think Noel Brown, was, even the it was too radical for the Labour Party, and he wasn't an incredibly radical man. His father uh, was a house builder uh, and great pride in the family that it's still referred to the rise of Mount Merion as Kenny built houses. Sherry Fitzgerald, who uh, always advertised it as Kenny, and, um, as Kenny built houses. So he wasn't some left-wing radical, but what he saw was a system that was made for wealth, creating more wealth uh, with inside knowledge, and that 
the state and the people should get the profits from the services the state are providing for that land. Uh, but as I say, Noel Brown uh, agreed with it. Obviously, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, as we know now, <laughs> you know, had a vested interest in not allowing it. The Labour Party wouldn't take it up for a long time, even it, it, it was so radical. And it was a huge disappointment to hear, for him to see that, uh, to see what, you know, that it was put in the back shelf. And at every general election, every party said, we will implement the Kenny report. They're probably still saying it 50 years later. And it was actually the minister who appointed him, who set up the commission, was Bobby Malloy, PDs. You know, it, they weren't obviously expecting a, a report that radical. He was a judge, wasn't he? He was. He was a High Court judge and then was um, promoted. He was appointed by Fianna Foyle and promoted by Fine Gael to the Supreme Court. Was there ever an expectation that you would follow into the law? Uh, I think it would be more likely that I would have been on the other side of the law. <laughs> How did you get into gambling? I had serious asthma as a kid, very serious asthma as a kid. And my dad was asking people, uh, what can they do? What can you do with a kid with asthma who can't exercise and things like that? And somebody at the King's Inn said that, um, why not bring him racing? And I was brought racing and I saw, I was, uh, I, I saw uh, the bookies, Terry Rogers and Sean Graham shouting and roaring the odds and big crowds around them. I said, I want to be important like that with people following. And it, I was attracted to it. And What age were you at this stage? About 14, I think. An impressionable youth brought into the den iniquity of gambling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And of course, when you became a bookmaker in those days, it was like kind of... Uh, God, it was... Putting the neighbour's daughter in the family way or something like that—it was just an absolute disaster. You know, people people were coming up to sympathise with my mum because she was uh, a Methodist, which I was only after she died um, when we saw the Methodist catechism. You know, drinking and general whoring around were terrible, but gambling was the utter Satan. Um, Might they have been right? Um, Certainly the way the gambling industry have developed and I'm not saying they were totally wrong but I think it might be an overstatement. Um, I've had to, as you know Matt, reassess my life in a lot of ways. Um, definitely even though I campaigned uh, against fixed odds betting terminals coming into Ireland, even though I was on the board of Paddy Power, but I made it clear I was going to do that. And Finta Drury, who was chairman at the time, was certainly not against me doing it. Uh, I approached Pat Rabbit and Enda Kenny, and I'd like to pay tribute to both of them. They immediately explained the reason these were so addictive. They said, you can take it our party. It was a typical political fix uh, that they were being brought in and they were going to, and horse racing was going to get extra money from the tax on them. And they were going to appoint a Fine Gaelor, it was a Fianna Fáil government, a Fine Gaelor to chair the commission who was close to the racing industry. And it was going to be shooed through. And 
Pat Rabbit was spokesman for Justice at the time for Labour and when I went to him about it and explained the two things that made it so addictive number one you could they were very quick fire so you could if you put money on the result came very quickly and you could repeat the dose and they are the two things that make a product now there's a lot of other things that make a product addictive but they are the two of the major things how quick fire is it between investment and result and how quickly can you repeat the dose and then I went to Enda Kenny and I was a bit kind of it was going to be a Fine Gaylor who was going to chair the commission and um, uh, he said I've got kids I can see that this is dangerous he says take it from me Fine Gaylor totally against it and one after another Charlie Flanagan bundles of other people came out the next week against them and um, uh, they still intended doing it. Then there was a change in the government, and I think uh, there was a new Minister for Justice who was getting the, the newspapers took it up, took the, the cause up. They were the crack cocaine of gambling. It's funny, we've started jumping around the place. This is yeah. you bringing me into your ADHD, <laughs> I think, that we're not following a linear approach to this interview. But that's fine, so let's just stick with these things at the moment, because these are enormous in the British gambling industry. Now, we'll get to the internet later, because the internet has changed everything in gambling, and significantly for the worse. But these particular machines were available in all of the shops in the UK and Paddy Power had expanded in the shops. I mean, we are not guilty here of a certain degree of hypocrisy in that you were stopping them from coming into Ireland because you knew how dangerous they were and yet you continue to operate them in all your stores in the UK. Well, unfortunately, on interviews, you can't plead the fifth. Um, but yes, there's no doubt. You know, uh, uh, I was... N- I always, while I did speak out against that, we we needed to put curbs and to try and collapse the market because it would dirty the gambling industry. I didn't do enough. There's no doubt. I have huge regrets about I didn't do enough. I did something, but I didn't do enough. There's no point in me boasting about the stopping them coming into Ireland because they were in the UK. Um, uh, I was known in the industry as being totally opposed to them, but that's no good. I should have spoken out. In fact, I should have left. Uh, and uh, yes, I pleaded. Because that's was 2009. You didn't leave Paddy Bar until 2016. It, that's correct. And I left because Paddy Power were making big PR moves of how much they were doing, how virtuous they were, but in fact were doing nothing about gambling addiction. And I could see... That I couldn't stay, but I should have left much earlier. And look, I plead guilty. There's no doubt. We'll get, we'll get back to that. But there's something else in relation to those fixed uh, betting terminals. In Aaron Rogan's book, Punters How Paddy Power Bet Billions and Changed Gambling Forever, he quotes Ivan Yates as saying that he doesn't believe your campaign at the time against the. Uh, but he thinks the reason is you didn't want the independent bookmakers, the smaller players in Ireland, to be able to have these to make money. And he thought you were effectively trying to squeeze them out and get Paddy Power's monopoly in Ireland bigger. He said he was laughing at you saying that. 
You're not really expecting me to take Ivan too seriously now. I mean, it's true, man. You know him better than anybody. You sat beside him for so long. But come on, come on, Matt. I thought this was a serious interview. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Ivan has said a lot. Um, and he's a mate of mine, but uh, but he said a lot. We we had this love affair that we'd fall out for six months of the year and uh, then be friends for six months of the year. But I'm not going to take that uh, allegation seriously. I mean, that that, that is... Uh, rubbish because, um, because I pointed out and you know the dangers of them um, but I do plead guilty yes there was hypocrisy and I should have left the board but I saw how dangerous they were in the UK and I wanted to change it I spoke out about it in uh, the board and I said that there were huge advantages for us to approach the British government to say uh, these are dangerous because they were dirtying the image of bookmaking. Now, bookmaking is in the same mould as cigarettes. And that's what's happened. And they were finding it harder and harder to get executives, to get board members. Um, You know, I was very relaxed about my kids' opening a betting account. Now, neither of them were punters. I think my son has a fiver accumulator in, on a Saturday or something like that in the soccer. Um, the, my daughter doesn't bet, but, well, I'm sure she'd bet in the Grand National, I don't know. Um, uh, but I wouldn't want my grandchildren. With the modern methods, which were applied in my day, but since I resigned from the board, I have gone around along the uh, a lot of the gambling charities especially the one that struck me most was gambling with lives that set up by charles and liz ritchie we well worth interviewing uh, whose son unfortunately jack uh, took his life and i've met um, them and i've seen the the damage and uh, that you know, I had a choice. I could resign from the board and shut up. Or I could speak up. So it was shut up or speak up. And the Gambling Good Lives and numerous other gambling charities asked me to speak up. Um, and I'm glad I did because one of the things, one can sleepwalk in life and... I suppose that is giving me a get-out-of-jail card saying I was sleepwalking. I should have known better. Um, But when somebody opens the betting account now and the bookmakers know this is dangerous and continue to do it, therefore what they're saying at the moment, how much they're doing, they want to spot the addict. That's their thing. But And I will get on to that, the difference between changing the product or chasing the addict. Uh, but when somebody opens a betting account, uh, say an 18-year-old opens a betting account to back Leinster Rugby uh, or to back Manchester United, God help them, uh, or Arsenal, even even greater, like myself, a supporter. But um, uh, within 24 to 48 hours, they're lured in with free bets, spins on the casino. If there's one thing the minister, and not hide behind the regulators. You know, everything is put down to the regulator and Ireland has a piece of going to have a magic wand. 
legislation. Regulators are there to implement legislation, not to make it. The minister should stop that now. You know, that uh, luring people from... It's 10 years at least that we have been talking about laws to deal with gambling in this country. Successive ministers have spoken about the need, they've acknowledged the problems, and yet damn all has been done. Why is that? Ah, they're just going through the motions. And Why? This one. Because if you look at the UK media, there is never, on any one day, there will be at least one, if not two, articles about gambling addiction in, in the in the broadsheets, as well as the Daily Mail and the people who set the Tory agenda. Um, the Irish media have not picked up on this. They will pick up on it, but unfortunately it'll be another five or six years before. They, they have not picked up to it. I mean, some people have written about it. Aaron Rogan has written on it. Uh, Declan Lynch has written on it, and one or two others, and you've written on it, uh, and one or two others. But it is not taken as seriously as it is in the UK. Why is that, do you think? Is that part of the Irish psyche that we actually like the idea of a bit of a flutter, it's all a bit of a laugh, and that we don't take seriously the addiction issues, and that we haven't understood the way that gambling has become all more pervasive? Talking about gambling being pervasive, you know, I have to make it that so. And I do not believe that gambling itself... uh, is dangerous. It is some of the elements that are dangerous, especially we don't have, we, Ireland, in fairness to the politicians, took a view about fixed odds betting terminals and slot machines. Slot machines are seen as dirty in Ireland. They're seen as a kind of cigarette type product. The UK had them in every pub, they allowed fixed odds betting terminals. So it became a major media story. And the politicians in the UK are all over this. In fairness to Ian Duncan Smith, now I, I wouldn't kick with a, a, a Tory foot myself, but Ian Duncan Smith uh, and numerous Tories are right on top of this, as well as Caroline Harris of Labour. And they, are, they will meet anybody uh, on that issue, whereas very few of the Irish politicians are interested in the issue. I think the present thing is just going through the motions. I mean, we, Fintan Drury and myself, have met numerous British politicians um, on the issue, and yet Irish politicians don't seem to have the same interest. Maybe you should take them to corporate hospitality at the races, and then they'd listen to you. Look, I did enough of that corporate hospitality in my day, Matt. Uh, the penny power chase was uh, the biggest uh, political corporate gig uh, in Ireland um, because there was a different attitude. But the attitude has changed. I mean... Uh, so is the horse racing industry all-powerful in this country? Does it lobby politicians? Because an awful lot of people are just baffled by how much money horse racing and greyhounds actually get from the state. A sort of level of support relative, relative to the involvement of people which is totally disproportionate to other sports. Of course it is. I mean, if you took the involvement of people into account for what government grants the government grants they get well then the GAA should be getting close to a, a half a billion or a billion a year from and 
uh, I'm I be a huge admirer of the GAA. It's one. Of, it is probably one of the greatest community organisations, not only in Ireland, in Europe. And the sporting organisation in Ireland, which has taken the scourge of gambling more seriously. Yeah, but they are a community organisation, and yet they haven't got that much government support in terms of finances. And maybe, you know, Jonathan Irwin, I remember when the government first was sponsoring racing, to a ridiculous extent in my view, um, said we are having, this is, we're becoming a semi-state and the industry will suffer. So the industry, the wealthy have become incredibly wealthy out of the, uh, in the racing industry. But the crowds are no bigger than they were when they got the first quarter of a million. Um, it doesn't have popular appeal like the GAA and... Soccer rugby. or rugby or any yeah. other sport. Um, uh, so it, I've never understood why they get so much. I mean, it's now running in the last... You know, it's getting 60 or 70 million. I've never understood why that is, uh, you know... We don't sponsor people with large yachts, yet we sponsor people with uh, wealthy people with horses. I mean, it, it, it is a transfer of money from the disadvantaged and, and ordinary taxpayers to, uh, to the, the wealthiest in society. roll back a bit. Let's go back to how you built up Paddy Power Bookmakers because in what we might say in a pre-internet and pre-smartphone era was a slightly more innocent vehicle. I mean you were great fun building it up. To what purpose? What, why when you started building Paddy Power brought it to the stock market? Was it to make yourself rich? Yeah of course it was. Sorry was that the sole purpose? No. But it certainly was yes I wanted to to get money um i wanted to retire early which i did um but i loved every minute of it why what did you love about it the fast moving nature there was plenty of novelty it was playing into all the things i had said about novelty seeking risk taking everything how did you make paddy Power different to the uk bookmakers who entered the irish market we brought betting from the racing pages to the front pages. Um, when you were allowed to be politically incorrect, we were politically incorrect. And uh, obviously now with the woke generation, you're not allowed. Um, in fact, you can't really have a sense, of, hardly a sense of humour now uh, without fear of getting a belt from somebody or other. Um, right, what type of things did you do as promotional activities that you think you would not be allowed to do now? Uh, Oscar Pistorius, betting on the Oscar Pistorius. Um, oh, 
Hmm? Yeah, the outcome of his trial for yeah. murder. It was a murder um, trial. Yeah. That wasn't very tasteful, was it? No, but then we weren't a tasteful organisation. Um, you know, the, the the genius behind it was Ken Robertson, who's now formed the Tenth Man Agency, uh, very successfully and rightly so, he, he, himself and uh, his partner Richard Seabrook and others are, are geniuses in the advertising market. But, uh, you know, with the Oscar Pistorius... Um, and as everybody knows, Oscar was missing his legs, uh, and it was money back if he walks. Now, uh, right. <laughs> um, and you know, I had bet on O.J. Simpson. The British bookmakers denounced me at the time when uh, you offered odds as to whether he would be found guilty or innocent. Yeah. And it was an amazing. The trial was much bigger than Pistorius. It was because there wasn't that many counter-attractions at the time. Uh, everybody was following it and uh, betting on who shot JR in Dallas and bet many things like that. But it was bringing it from the racing pages to... Because only 12% of the population actually have an int- a real interest in horse racing outside of the Grand National. And so who's getting onto the front pages. And in some respects, did you seek notoriety that no such thing as bad publicity if it got the Paddy Power name out there? Yeah. And I did it when I was trading on my own name as well, boosting my own ego. Um, and yes, there was no such thing as bad publicity. You just shrugged your shoulders. And, you know, I remember... Paddy of Paddy Power, um, the wonderful spokesman, uh, coming up with the idea of betting on army deafness. Do you remember the controversy yes. about army deafness? And PD4 or one of them said they were going to pick at all our shops. And we rolled it for about a day or two, but then realised that there were a lot of army people going into our shops. So we made a contribution to PD4 and wrapped it up. But we've got the publicity. that The newspapers have got bored at that stage anyhow with us. The British bookmakers would read the newspapers and then go for betting on it. But the news media had moved on. We actually saw something breaking and were on. So I'd be working at 8 o'clock at night, um, coming up with stuff for the next day's newspapers. Take me forward then to your decision in 2001 to step down as chief executive of Paddy Power because even though you stepped down, you actually really didn't leave, did you? I mean, you had new chief executives, but you maintained a much closer relationship with them than a normal non-executive director did, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's true, yes, yes. Um, and so, well, with John O'Reilly... Uh, he did his own thing and ran it, you know, um, made it into a proper big business organization because, uh, in fair, you know, he had been the person there to pick up the pieces from my chaos. Um, I mean, I, no one would let me run a business. I was a marketing man first and foremost. And not really a good chief executive? Hmm? Were you a good chief executive? Well, I don't want to be too hard on myself. I probably was quite good, but without 
Jimmy Mangan, who was a genius with people and has a heart the size of the Atlantic Ocean and a wonderful individual, and John O'Reilly was incredibly organised and far-sighted. Uh, and, of course, John Corcoran as chairman, who was magnificent, I mean, wonderful man. You know, that was fine. I could be as chaotic as I wanted and there were people to pick up my pieces. Um, but you wouldn't want me running big organisations. I mean, that's not my strength at all. I'm a razzmatazz. I was a razzmatazz man. So then, and I'm going to come back to the gambling in a moment. I just want to take a detour because when you stepped down as you chief executive, the ADHD now, aren't you? <laughs> when you stepped down as chief executive, you became a psychotherapist. A psychotherapist. How did that happen? Well, I was saying that I had been in therapy myself, and I was keen to discover that further and I was really interested in it and um, so I did a four year course in Dublin Counselling and Therapy Centre uh, where I was where bits and pieces of me were taken apart really because you had to do your own therapy and a lot of group therapy and I became a psychotherapist then I did um a three-year uh, part-time course, uh, but you were kind of locked up for the week, uh, one weekend a month on group psychoanalysis. Um, and so I became a psychotherapist. As w- and But hold on, doesn't that profession require almost the antithesis of being ADHD and that it requires a sort of a discipline and also that you would actually have to be more of a listener rather than a doer. Yeah, well, then maybe I wasn't brilliant. Maybe I wasn't brilliant, but I got through all the courses. But no, no, it doesn't need to be incredibly organised. It needs to build a relationship with the client that the client feels accepted and heard and that you have the best interest of the client at heart. Um, so it was good. I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying I was a brilliant psychotherapist, but... Um, but did it help you develop a degree of empathy as well, or is that something you always naturally had? Well, should one judge one's own um, empathy, I'm not too sure. Uh, I hope I have empathy. Um uh, uh, I know Ivan Yates uh, in his book described me as being awesomely ruthless. Um, I hope I have empathy, but I, I don't think it's for me to judge my own empathy. I hope I have. Do you suffer from guilt? Around the gambling? Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, of course I do. And I have huge regrets. Um, How consuming is that? It it is a um, it's a major part of my life, but I think I'm better off. I mean, numerous gambling addiction charities have asked me to keep going. I felt there was a temptation to make one statement, try and clear the slate in some ways. Of course, it doesn't clear the slate. Um, I don't have huge regrets about 
betting shops in Ireland. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that people who have a flutter that is a healthy pursuit. I am. I am. You're not. I am not anti-gambling in any way. I love Pro- gambling. Prohibition will not work. You will not stop gambling. Like you won't stop people drinking. Like unfortunately, you won't stop people smoking either. People go for vices. They will do them. It's a question of controlling and regulating them. Is it? It is. But I love gambling. I. I, I do you, you still know. gamble? Do you? Oh yeah. Oh good God! Yeah. On politics, I. I bet the bank uh, Joe Biden God I had a bad night uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning when uh, the Donald looked as if he had upset the odds um, Why would you say bad night how much would you have wagered? Um, that's between me and my confessor and you were not he weighed my confessor a lot of money but I, I love I get the same pleasure out of having a tenor on a bet as uh, having in fact uh, very large bets are more, you know, on politics will be an investment, but I can't get on except for American elections. I can't get on. So, okay, I'm not going to come do this. This you've got dragged me down this rabbit hole. I'm bouncing all around the place. <laughs> I know, but hold on, hold on. Yeah, My latest bet was I was backing before the vote the other night. I backed Boris Johnson to be gone in 2023. Um, so you didn't want him gone this in 2022. Oh, to see him gone, the, the, the quicker he's gone, the better. I mean, it wasn't that heavy a bet. But I can't get decent bets on politics because they've limited all my accounts. You won't remember this, but we met in Dingle in 2008, not long after Bertie Ahern stepped down as Taoiseach. Yeah. We just happened to run into each other. Yeah. And we sat down on the wall outside the Dingle Skellig Hotel and we had a chat. So I'm going to ask you if you'll tell me the story about how you had a sizable bet placed on Bertie Ahern stepping down which you placed on the morning that he actually stepped down and you placed with Celtic bookmakers and Ivan went absolutely nuts <laughs> yeah I that was great because I was meant to be meeting it was about fixed odds betting I had been in touch with Mark Hennessy of the Irish Times uh, a great guy and um, he's a good friend of mine as well yeah um, and I haven't talked to him in a long time now but I'd been in touch with him about the fixed odds betting terminals um, and we were meeting for a coffee and at the last minute he said uh, he rang me up and said Stuart I know it's only half an hour before we were meant to meet but Bertie Hearns just called an emergency press conference uh, and I have to go to it and it was only, I said, he's gone. And I, uh, filled, I filled my boots in with Celtic bookmakers, Ivan's firm, rang up Patrick Kennedy. He, he filled his boots with, <laughs> with it. And um, Bertie was gone an hour later. And uh, I told Mark Hennessy afterwards, then I'm sorry about it, Two weeks later, I rang up to have a bet and they said, your account is closed. And so was Patrick's account closed. So I rang up Mark Hennessy, um, who uh, I said, you got my account closed. And he said, I can't use that. But uh, Miriam Lord can use it. And I, uh, because Anna Ivan said that uh, he was in the air at the time and it was unfair. And I said, does that mean every punter with Celtic bookmaker has, has to check uh, whether... 
Ivan is in the country or not. Anyhow, we made up eventually and uh, it was fine. Okay, that was why I just wanted to go to that slight little diversion. I think the, the more important thing to talk about is the nature of the change in gambling created by the internet and by the smartphone. Um, and the ease, because there was always a thing, there were restrictions on the amount of shops that could open and on the opening hours of shops and where they would be placed. And there was also, I think, a sense for people, a lot of people didn't want to be seen to go in and out of gambling shops. But then the ease of using a smartphone and getting an app and the rest of it. I so you, you weren't to stop that happening. I mean, even if Paddy Power hadn't gone that route, well, you'd have been out of business and every other uh, gambling institution would have made hay. I think it's an unfair pressure to accept that uh, bookmakers should self-regulate. That isn't, it's, it, it's not viable. And, and I will come back to that. Uh, to expect uh, bookmakers to self-regulate is ridiculous. We need regulation. In Ireland, we really need that the law to be changed and not to hide behind a regulator that he will solve, he or she will solve everything. If they do appoint a regulator, it should be somebody from outside Ireland who has huge experience, somebody from Australia or a, a, a international experience, not an official from the Department of Justice or one of the usual regulators. I mean, there's so many regulators in Ireland for things that really haven't solved a lot. We need the legislation that Dáil needs to get to grips with this. There doesn't seem to be any political urgency to do it. But the fundamental thing is the betting industry, by its very nature, believes the best way of solving this is to set up all sorts of algorithms, checking things to see who's getting addicted. Because that is founded on a fundamental uh, misleading concept that there are weak people out there and they're the ones who will get addicted and everybody else is fine. No, the truth is, and I know before you say you've changed your tune on this, I have been saying it for five years and my campaign against fixed odds betting terminals uh, it fits in with it there are it's the product it's, there are parts of the product there are parts of the product that are absolutely fine if you go in and buy a lottery ticket on a Monday for a Wednesday's draw that isn't addictive but if you've got quick spin on the casino that is highly addictive and it fits in it's interesting I read, I don't know if you've read the book Empire of Pain. Wonderful book about the opioid crisis. A wonderful book. Keefe, yeah. But the interesting thing was the Sackler family used exactly the same argument that the bookmakers are using. It's the people are the problem, not the product. Now, that was totally and completely false. The NRA, the National Rifle Association in the, U in the US, are using the same thing. And they've often been quoted as saying, it's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people. You know, it is exactly um, the same. And the gambling industry use, you know, a spot the addict. That isn't going to work. The, the casino, and it is mainly in the casino, it, the problem is, the casino, they need to have the same restrictions as fixed odds betting terminals have in the UK. The UK government are going to move on it. Um, but in Ireland, they need to do it. But, but Stuart, it goes deeper than that because 
in as well as I said, the internet and the mobile phones are the obvious signs to the consumer of where addiction can mm. be exhibited. But what's really important is it's what Paddy Power became from about 2005 onwards. It also became um, an algorithm-based company. You had extraordinary mathematical minds and computer power applied. And finding out, you found out from an early stage an awful lot about problem gambling and problem customers that you had. And the evidence is there to suggest that on many occasions, rather than actually shutting down or limiting people's accounts, realising that they became the super profit generators and they were actually not just indulged, but encouraged to actually worsen their situation. That's true. And in a new gambling act... And again, this is going contrary to a lot of things I did in my career, and I accept that, but it, I'm landed in the situation of shut up or speak up. Yeah, but what sort of discussions and debates took place within Paddy Power? There were. Patrick Kennedy was very committed, and I believe uh, if he continued further, he would he would have got there. He was very committed to uh, to uh, doing things to to really use the the algorithms and the ingenuity of a lot of people working there to uh, find the people who were addicted. He was very committed to changing things, but this is where self regulation can't work because. The bonuses of the people who were running this, they're humans, you know. All our bonuses were dependent on making more profits. This is why the government have to come and do something um, rather than expecting the gambling industries. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of something Matt Gaskell said. He's an NHS psychologist. Who has, who has written brilliantly on the gambling industry. Nothing is going to change until the decisions about what's safe are made by peoples whose in, people whose incentives are aligned with the public good instead of aligned with corporate profit. The government need to do this. And I think the commitment in government, I think, is pretty poor. OK, but there are other elements to that. What about the shareholders? I mean, you're a publicly quoted company, so that puts you under pressure to continuously grow the share price, to provide profits and dividends to the shareholders and capital gains to the shareholders. But are you not going to be like, is the industry not going to face a tobacco-type moment that lots of investors will say they cannot invest in the companies unless they show themselves to be acting ethically and responsibly? But you see... I don't think it is a fair... First of all, yes, that is happening. Society is moving against gambling like it is moving... uh, like it moved against cigarettes. But this is a government issue. I am not saying that gambling companies shouldn't do a lot more. They should curb some of the profits. Or the the products, sorry, not profits. Products. I think in long term... Maybe they should be curbing some of the profits as well because if you're taking profits by knowing that you are deliberately exploiting addiction, 
that you are taking people's money that they cannot afford, well, surely there is a limit on the profits that a company should chase. Yes, but I think you are expecting board directors to be ethical czars, to be... No, you know, I'm not. Tr- why, why, why would you not expect them to be good humans instead of when they know that there are individuals who end up in situations like you described earlier who kill themselves because of their debts? That people who borrow money that they can't afford to repay, which simply goes straight to the gambling company. Surely responsible, ethical board members will say, instead of earning X profits, well, maybe we earn X minus 20% profits, and that's still an acceptable return on the capital investment, rather than earning more and creating this misery for people. It would be so easy for me to say, yes, you're right, because I'm not on a board. Uh, But I think it's an unfair pressure on board members when, if you're expecting one company to do this and another company just eats their dinner and then gets all the advantages, can pay executives more. This is a government issue. I am not saying that the... the, um, I do think gambling companies should stop luring people into the casino. I mean, I'll go back to this. It is equivalent that... The way that you are, young people are, and uh, vulnerable people are lured into the casino is equivalent to going for your first drink and having a shandy in a bar, and the barman uh, after your first drink says, "Here's a triple strength brandy on the house." That's what it's equivalent to. And what happened now? The the alcohol industry has actually shown shown the way in a lot of ways. When Alcopops, which was a huge scourge for your, your kids are too young, but mine, when we were trying to bring up children to be responsible, Alcopops, and parents were getting big time peed off with publicans, supermarkets, and the alcohol industry. And the alcohol industry saw that their core product was getting damaged by the bad reputation Alcopops was bringing, and they stopped marketing it. The gambling industry, now they have a beef, oh, what's it, the B- B- British gaming, and they, and they have found some labour stooge um, to uh, ch- uh, ch- uh, chair it. Um, but... Uh, uh, they, they haven't made any big change because the fundamental change needs to be to the product. I understand exactly the danger of these casino spin-the-wheel products and the rest of it, but is it not also the case that an awful lot of this harm done in gambling has been on straightforward sports gambling? I mean, Tony Ten, that book that Declan Lynch wrote with Tony O'Reilly, I mean, that guy was that he lost £1.7 million as a postmaster down in Wexford. He was doing sports gambling mainly, and he was getting the VIP treatment from Paddy Power bookmakers, being brought to the races, getting tickets for big oh. events, getting lines of credit, and then stealing money to actually recover it. So it's not just casinos. It can be the straightforward. It can. Yeah, look, it can. You are right. But we're not suggesting that gambling gets regulated to the point that you cannot gamble. You know, the rate of alcoholism is very high. Are we suggesting that pubs... There is a balance. Yeah. But but the balance in the the drinks industry, 
I think it's around right. Some people might argue it's not, but I think it's around right. The balance in the gambling industry is not right. The government have fallen asleep in the job. They've, the truth is, I was glad to see Michal Martin speaking the other day about advertising and gambling. The truth is the government don't have a huge interest. They, they, it hasn't become... And, and the media must take... They haven't followed the story uh, that much can I in ask, Ireland. Can I ask you another question, which you may not want to answer. You may regard this as too personal. But you must have made an awful lot of money out of Paddy Power Bookmakers over the years in dividends and through the sale of your shareholding. I think you have sold your shares in Flutter, haven't you? I have no interest in the gambling industry yet. Anymore, so you sold. So you sold at a significant profit. Have you put much of that money back in to helping those who have lost to gambling addiction? When you say much, I'm not going to go into details. I have contributed to quite a few gambling um, charities. I really wanted to contribute to Gambling With Lives, and they said, sorry, we're not taking any uh, betting money. Oh, they wouldn't take your money? They wouldn't take my money. It was tainted money. as far as they were concerned. Yeah, and, but they asked me to speak out. Okay. And I think that that is why there shouldn't be a voluntary levy. It should be a statutory levy, because a voluntary levy, the bookmakers still have a hold over who they give it to. It should be a statutory uh, levy. Um, they should they should stop uh, the free bets and VIP treatment. I know I was involved in it, but being wise after the event, they should stop it. There's, no, there's nothing to be gained out of it. The society will not gain out of free bets and VIP treatment. The realisation that you had that you were involved in something that was ethically and morally wrong and your decision to do... I didn't say that. Did you not? Okay. Is that not the implication of what you're saying? I was involved in an industry that there were parts of it that were... The idea that gambling, I am not anti-gambling. I, I am not going to... No, down. no, clearly you've told us with your bets and Joe Biden and the rest <laughs> of it earlier that you still are into it, yes. Yeah, I, and I think it's a wonderful uh, thing. But it has dangers. You know, drink has dangers. I mean, there is very little social benefit one can see from cigarettes. It is just prohibition doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, to say that gambling... It, it gives people a huge sense of involvement. I mean, anybody can say they're right. It's only with a, a, a betting docket you can kind of prove you're right to a certain extent, unless you're writing in the media. Well, th- remember, I think maybe as you or somebody else said previously, that in the old days, that if you went into a Paddy Power bookmakers and if you went in with 50 quid and if you came out with 40, that you were happy enough, you'd made your 10 quid for providing entertainment for them for the couple of hours or whatever, that in the modern-day gambling company... Paddy Power others, if you come in with your 50 quid or go on the internet with 50 quid, they want all of the 50 quid rather than just a share of it. And they don't care how you feel by the end of the process. Well, you see, that's why it is a social pressure and the people feeling that it has gone too far and, you know, the institutions getting wary that Flutter, run by... Peter Jackson, and he's a magnificent CEO and is now the world's biggest bookmakers, 
Um, the, I, when I left in 2016, the share price was 103. I think it's about 109 now. You know, Amazon have gone up from 800 to 2,500. Um, Microsoft has gone from 60 to 250 or whatever it is. Um, the, the institutions are getting wary of gambling. Um, and it was always the danger. It's the, the long term is the gambling companies need to be like the alcohol industry was, you know, with alcohol pops. The gambling companies need to get real and stop going chase the addict. Say some of the products need to be curbed. They need to get ahead of the game. Okay, let's bounce around with a few questions before we finish. Is the stock market a form of gambling? Of course it is. There is. If you talk to Barry Grant, who I know you have talked to, yeah, he's got people who uh, who are day traders and things like that. It is, of course, a form of gambling. I love it. I do it. What about a football match? Do you watch a football match? You might have a bet on the outcome beforehand. Do you start betting in play on who's going to get the next corner, who's going to get the number of yellow cards? I mean, this is the thing when... When I was a kid and myself and a friend used to sneak down to Cashman's Bookmakers and place a treble for the weekend, you had a docket, there was very little available. Now you look at a football match, an individual match, and there can be up to 200 different bets available on it. I mean, is that good or bad? The, a lot of the gambling addiction charities have said the in-play has led to problems. I am not into over-regulating. Um, uh, so my main concern would be the casino and the VIP treatments and things like that. I, I think it's... it's, it's uh, you know, the old 1931 Betting Act, which is still in play, but it was based, it was based on the, the basis that gambling was basically immoral, but we had to regulate it. Uh, but it stopped the open encouragement of people gambling. Now, I, I actually don't uh, totally agree with that, but I do agree with encouraging them to gamble more and more. Okay, a different direction. You trained as a psychotherapist. Did you also convert to Buddhism? Oh, God, the, the day I said that I had interest in Buddhism... It's I regret it, and all those headlines, the Buddhist bookie and everything like that. I have an interest in Buddhism and Dzogchen Bera in Castellambert, uh, which I was a regular visitor, and I bought a house very close by and then found McCarthy's Bar, the most magnificent bar in Ireland, in my view. Um, uh, but um, getting back to the Buddhism, I have an interest in Buddhism, um, the, the search is within it is the search within and stops you blaming everybody else for your for your problems um, yes I do have uh, an interest but I, no I didn't convert but do you think that interest has influenced the change of your attitude towards problem gambling over the last decade or so so probably yes yeah to finish you've just turned 70 recently tell us about your cycling now you don't have another hour to speak to me um yes i am uh, well being 
a bit ADHD-ish, as I've told you, when I do things, I do them obsessively. It's all or nothing. Um, so when I had to give up skiing because one of my knees uh, was giving trouble, I took up cycling and uh, I love it. I find it very good for my ADHD. Um, the four S's in ADHD, sport and sleep are really good for it. Sugar and screens are a complete disaster. And it is, you know, this, but it's, it's not a glib uh, just uh, doing it. That is uh, factual. So, but cycling, is, I find really good, but I also find it really therapeutic. And I've made so many wonderful friends through cycling. But like anything, it is done obsessionally. So um, uh, myself and my mates did the 312 in Mallorca, which is 312k. Uh, over every mountain in Mallorca uh, in a day. Um, we did a half everything, going up and down Hotel 35 times. Uh, so, uh, so anyhow, yes, I, and, and of course the hills of Castledown Bear and Bear District. Are That's like some that. achievement for a man of 70 to be cycling those distances. And I've not been patronising in any way saying that. You have to be super fit at most ages to do that. It's a hell of an achievement at the age of 70. Thank you. Um, Yes, but but that is my obsessional nature. That's why I'm so hard to live with. (laughs) Stuart Kenny, it has been great having you talking so frankly and openly. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.